Welcome to the Dreamcatcher Podcast, a place where your dreams can find a voice. I'm your host, Celine Chenoy. Thank you to all of you who return every week to tune in to become a better version of yourself. Make sure you hit subscribe if you haven't already, and rate our show if you enjoyed this episode. Body language refers to the gestures a person's face or body uses to communicate non-verbally, either consciously or unconsciously. Becoming skilled at reading non-verbal cues can be invaluable to us in our personal and professional lives and make us better communicators. To teach us more about the art of interpreting body language, I invited Dr. Jillian Pearson. Jillian, or Professor Pearson, has a psychology degree from UC Berkeley and a master's and doctorate degrees from USC's Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism. Jillian works to engage students in an ongoing conversation about communication as a social science and to encourage them to make their own unique contributions. Join us for this fun conversation during which Jillian offers a basic framework for understanding nonverbal behavior and advice on how we can become better at reading people. She also debunks some common myths and gives tips on spotting liars and cheaters. Hi, Jillian. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Celine. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for making time to speak with me today. Um, I've always wanted to learn more about body language and share it with my listeners. So I'm really glad that we have the opportunity to learn from someone who is well-versed in this topic. Well, it's a fun topic, so I'm always happy to speak about it. Okay, great. So I always like to start out my interviews by learning more about the person I'm speaking with. So... In your profile, you describe yourself as a combination of curator, docent, and coach in intercultural and interpersonal communication. So I'm interested to know what got you interested in this field and when did you decide that you wanted to make it your profession to to teach about it? Mm-hmm. Well, I think like many people in various professions, the profession just happened to me more than my making a decision. But I have a pretty happy accidental path, I think, to where I am today, in that I grew up wanting to be an actress. And I went to college and I graduated and I still wanted to be an actress. But eventually, after waiting tables with a college degree under my belt, one day that kind of the desire just fled my body and I thought I needed a real job and I was still interested in entertainment. So I ended up working in classical music management. So all those conductors and violinists and other soloists that you see, they all have international representation. And so I worked for a company that represented international artists and it's a very inherently international intercultural field and so I was fascinated by the ways people had of doing things differently across countries as we sent these artists from Japan to uh, South America to London to New York and the artists of course also were very international we had Hungarian artists and Finnish artists as well as American artists and so on so 
I got very interested in intercultural. And then while I was at that job, I actually had to go serve on jury duty. And I was fascinated on jury duty by an intercultural misunderstanding of the jurors to the people who were on the stand. And it was like um, a very more less cultural really than classist assessment that I felt the jurors were making. And I just decided I really wanted to pursue these, my interest in cultures. And I guess it's a, it's kind of a long way around my story saying I was an actress and then I ended up interested in culture, but really part of being an actor is empathizing with other people. So I felt that also tied in with under trying to understand people from various cultural backgrounds. And so when I came to study and got my PhD at USC, I ended up teaching and fell in love with teaching. So that's how I ended up still years later being a professor at USC. Interesting. And you mentioned something about the jury making a classist decision. What, what is that? Yeah. What does that mean? Well, the, it was, it wasn't even a very meaningful case. It was like uh, one of these, uh, lawsuits about a car accident, but the witness, it, the accident had taken place in a kind of gritty neighborhood in downtown Los Angeles. And the witness was a mother who lived in an apartment and this is pre cell phone. She didn't have a home phone. And so she claimed to have witnessed this accident while her baby was napping and she had gone downstairs to cross the street to go to a payphone to make a phone call. And when I heard that, my heart went out to her because I just thought, wow, you don't even have a home phone. You have to leave your baby napping so that you can make a phone call. But then when we got to the jury room, other jurors were saying, oh, I can't believe this woman at all because Nobody would leave a baby sleeping to go make a phone call. And I just thought nobody would make it. I mean, how do you know that? You only think that because you have a phone. I mean, it's funny because since the, I was uh, not a mother myself then, and now that I am, sure, it's hard to imagine leaving my baby sleeping alone. But not if that was my only way of making a phone call. I just felt like it was such a narrow-minded, classist way of viewing somebody else's perspective on the world. And it really just, it shocked me a lot more than many other sort of intercultural interactions that I'd had or seen. But that just perspective of completely not understanding somebody else's position is what I mean by a classist moment right. in that jury Right, right. So that had a deep impact on you. It did. Yeah. Right. Okay. Thanks for sharing. So now I'm curious to know, what are the main factors that influence the way that we communicate non-verbally? Well, my favorite one, it's going to be obvious because of everything I was just saying, but it's our cultural background. So we all grow up um, in a culture or cultures for some people. And our cultures have a lot to do with how we communicate non-verbally. So we have inherent uh, 
ways of communicating with our bodies that we don't have to learn. But even something as natural as smiling gets laden with rules on top of it. And those rules come from our cultures. So you'll see, for example, um, in the American South, it's the normal and natural thing to smile at a stranger on the street as you walk by them, especially if you're in a more rural area. But in an urban environment like New York, uh, you don't smile at strangers on the street. So even though we all have um, the capacity and, and we choose to smile, we have rules that tell us how to do it. That's one big influence on how we communicate nonverbally. Um, another one is our own family background. So some families are very touchy-feely and they have a lot of physical contact. And then others uh, are much more distant physically. It doesn't mean there's a lack of love, but they have a different style of communicating. So families also have a great deal of influence on us. Our personalities have a great deal of influence on us. So if you're an extrovert, you probably communicate differently non-verbally than you do as an introvert. And I'd say there's one other big influence is not so much about the individual, but about the setting, and that is power. Power has a big influence on how we communicate with one another. So the same person, if they're dealing with a superior in some way, somebody who has higher status, like a boss or um, you know, a professor maybe for a student, uh, they're going to communicate non-verbally differently than they would when they're dealing with somebody who is of lower status, like an underling or um, maybe if a senior in college dealing with a high school student or something like that. So power really affects how we communicate non-verbally as well. That's interesting. And you see some of that in the animal kingdom too, right? Absolutely. So at, at the heart of things, we're animals as well. That's true. And, <laughs> and, you, and so if you, if you look to the animal kingdom as kind of a, a recent past, you can see a, gorilla. a great example of this. Gorilla. Like the gorillas. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so a gorilla will puff himself up and make himself really bit, look big if he wants to threaten somebody. Uh, you know, another gorilla, but if you, if a gorilla wants to show some submission, you'll see themselves uh, kind of do a smile and make themselves smaller. I think it's fascinating to look at the animals to see. Um, it's like they don't have verbal language like we do. So it's just nonverbal communication that they use. Right. And while I'm more interested in people than I am in animals, I'm always fascinated to think about how the animals are kind of like representatives of early humans also in a way. Right, right. And what are some of the common misconceptions people have when it comes to interpreting body language? Because I know, you know, you get so many articles these days about, oh, when when someone crosses their hands, that means they're they're closed off, when they could actually be feeling really cold, you know, like things like that. So I'm curious to know, like, what are some of the most common common ones that people have? Well, sadly, it's almost exactly what you said. The, the main misconception is that we can read a person like a book. I mean, I think there's even some popular book out there that says you can read a person like a book, but you can't. Because the main thing that we miss when we think about finding 
particular signs, like you just mentioned, a closed off body position uh, or uh, eye contact. Eye contact. That was what I was going to say. A person looking away when they're lying or something like that. There, there are too many other factors going on to create like a line that goes from this behavior to that outcome. So we all wish that we could just read a person like a book, but it's just not that simple. Most people miss, um, you know, either conflicting signs or personality differences or those power differences, like I mentioned. So it's just not that easy, unfortunately. Yeah, but like if you're someone who's experienced like a detective and who has tons of experience, is it possible for them to to navigate these misconceptions or someone like yourself? I think that with uh, there are some people who get better at it over time. And there's one theorist in the world of nonverbal communication research who argues that they're kind of like super uh, sort of super readers of nonverbal communication. They're very, very good at detecting certain signs, but they're very rare. And sadly, even among law enforcement, where you would hope that they'd be really good at spotting signs of lying or being secretive or something, even they are not very good at it. So it's like um, everybody can maybe work on some of these skills and pay more attention, but the biggest lesson to keep in mind is that context is everything. And so if you think you're learning a bunch of signs and signals, they may work in some cases, but very well not work at all in others. Oh, when you say context, what do you mean exactly? Well, give me an example. Let's see. Yeah. So an example would be that somebody, let's see, somebody telling the truth to their uh, best friend um, or lying to their best friend in the context of that relationship, maybe maybe the best friend can tell, <laughs> maybe, not necessarily, but maybe because of their hit shared history. So the context of the shared history would be part of it or their location, like, oh, I've got this person relaxed. We're sitting in our own living room. We're um, having a drink. I can totally tell whether they're lying or telling the truth. But in a different context, let's say um, in a job interview, and maybe the two friends go together to a job interview. It's a team interview. But the the tension in the room is very different. The whole experience of the context of having a higher uh, status person in the room as in a job interviewer, then maybe their communication style is going to change and it may be harder for the uh, friends to read each other's nonverbal communication. Those are the best examples, but context is basically all the information that surrounds any communication event. So, so you have that to take, changes. Yeah. So you have to take that into consideration when always. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So what can we do to become better at reading, um, you know, other people's nonverbal behavior? Well, I kind of would like to um, flip that question around and encourage people to think about maybe how they can uh, be better at communicating nonverbally, for one thing. So 
I'm a big advocate in, and when I say like, as you said at the beginning, that I consider myself kind of a coach. One of the things I advocate for among my students is that they should communicate authentically. That we do a lot in this world about trying to sort of put on an impression. If you think about how we craft our image on social media or um, try to fit in with other people, that really we're the most successful as communicators when we are true to who we are ourselves. So you can become better with a lot more acceptance of who you are and communicating from that authenticity. In terms of reading other people, it's, uh, it, it's uh, I think, uh, one thing to do is to consider not just these individual signs like you often read about. Like you'll read, well, if somebody uh, looks away from you, maybe they can't be trusted. Or, or if somebody's... The pointing- dilating pupils. That's a big one. If someone's Yeah, <laughs> dilating pupils. Yeah. Dilating pupils are fascinating, but also it's very hard for one human to be looking at another and register. Register that. Yeah, Yeah, let's see. Did those just go from an eighth of an inch to a quarter of an inch? I can't really tell. Yeah, I never never figure out how, how, how you could do that. Yeah. I mean, that is very hard to do with the naked eye. The funny thing is, is that we do do it. We're just not aware of it. We actually do register when somebody's pupils dilate, but not in a conscious way. But if you have a, say, a warm response to somebody, it may be that you're having that positive feeling towards them in part because their pupils are dilated because that is an indicator of warmth and liking. But we're we're such finely tuned machines in this way that you can't be really conscious of it and if you start going around studying other people's eyes to see if they're dilating you're going to look inauthentic yourself and you and a can freak. you imagine you look like a freak <laughs> exactly can you imagine talking to somebody and they're just seem to be scrutinizing your your pupils no. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is it's 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 instinctual almost yeah, most, I mean, we're, the thing is that we're already very, very good at it. It's just that sometimes we're let down by, say, somebody deceiving us. And so then we start to focus on how can we improve. But really, the human uh, body is very well equipped already at reading and reacting and interacting through nonverbal communication. Where you're already doing an excellent job, whatever job you're doing. Right. Um, And so is there anything we can do to avoid being deceived or being lied to others? Because that happens to people all the time. So is there anything we can look out for? Um, Do you have any tips on on how we can avoid such situations? (laughs) Yeah, I I can give you a few tips. The thing about these tips, you want to take them with a grain of salt because the most the most important thing to know is that even in all the studies that they do about lie detection, we, we are terrible at it. Like people are just not good. And we all think that there are these tells like if a person looks away or if they're nervous or if they uh, stutter or make up details, these are all things that we think, aha, they're lying. 
but those could also be signs of nervousness. So it's very hard to tell whether somebody is actually lying or not. But the easiest lie to spot is that of a fake smile. So it's not what you classically think of as like the kind of line you're looking for. You know, you want to know if your boyfriend is cheating or something like that. And, or if a politician is uh, saying something and it's not true, but really the easiest lie to spot is if somebody is faking a smile, because when you're a person is faking a smile, they are only using their mouth to smile. And the key to really seeing a smile, whether it's authentic is if the corners of the eyes are moving. So you see those little wrinkles at the corners of the eyes, and that is the difference between a real smile and a fake smile. You see somebody just with that bottom half of the face moving, and you can just tell, okay, why are they fake smiling at me? What does this mean? So that's one tell. Another tell is if there's a big discrepancy between their words and their nonverbal communication. And again, like you're probably, most people are probably already pretty good at this. So if you have a friend and they tell you that they've had a fine day, but they're acting sad, you're already picking up on that kind of discrepancy. So you're already good at this. You say to your friend like, oh, you said you're fine, but you don't seem fine. So you're already good at it. But in the context of where you're trying to determine if somebody is lying to you, you're probably not thinking about paying attention to those discrepancies. So you want to see if they're able to sort of smoothly tell you without seeming awkward because of the discrepancy between their body language and their words. It's harder to do when you're dealing with someone who's really good at keeping a poker face, you know, like those sociopaths or whatever, <laughs> you know? So Yeah, I'm a, I highly recommend uh, that you avoid sociopaths. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but, you know, people who are very good at hiding their, who, who can be rather stoic. So. Absolutely. You know, yeah. Yeah. And so one of the things to do with people who seem really stoic is to look for very, very subtle signals to see if you can uh, kind of ferret out whether or not they're telling the truth. So there's a famous poker player who won a match by looking at all the poker faces that people do around the poker table, very, very stoic faces and noting that when the guy had a winning hand, he looked to the naked eye, like he was just completely uninterested, total blank face, but his nostrils would flare. If he looked at his cards and he was really happy about his hand, his nostrils would flare. And this, this winning poker player caught on to that. And so was able to tell when they were excited about their hand. And so they knew how to bet against them. So there are things like that that people do, but you have to be very, very tuned in to their facial expressions. Another example of that is that uh, there's a whole category of facial expression that's called micro expression. Yeah, heard it's of called that. A, Yeah. So micro expression is micro because it happens very quickly. So it's almost like in your, the easiest way to think about it is if you could videotape somebody and slow down the playback and they will look like they are presenting, um, you know, their facial expression is calm or, or they're supposed to be happy. So they're acting happy, but this micro expression will 
leak out and that they'll maybe they're supposed to have a happy expression, but you see this very momentary flash of say anger. And then the expression goes away so quickly that it's hard to see it with your naked eye. But if you were able to slow down a tape and watch it, then you could see it. So some people, when they pay attention to facial expressions, um, they're able to study those facial expressions and get better at detecting microexpressions. So that is the one thing that you can look for is, is there a flash of something there that doesn't seem congruent with the rest of the person's presentation? Like, why do they suddenly look angry? Or if they're supposed to be upset about something, why do they suddenly look happy? So it's microexpressions and then that uh, uh, the other kind of discrepancy between their words and actions. And then those fake smiles. Those are my three pieces of advice. Okay. Okay. Wow. That, that, that's great. And does it also help to know the person's general patterns? Like this is where, it, you know, it helps to, to know the person a little bit and be like, oh, that's not how they normally are. Like really close friends and, you know, spouses and they have that history together. So they're able to detect when they have a sense of their patterns of each other's patterns. That's, so it's that's easier, right. right? In, in such situations. Yes. Sadly, we haven't been able to reconfirm this in laboratory studies. So if you bring best friends into the laboratory and you ask them to lie to each other, we're not finding that they're good at detecting the oh, lie. Really? Oh. Yeah, it's kind of sad because I actually still believe that the problem is that it's a laboratory study because I do believe in real life because you have the relational history and you know the person really well you can tell when they're lying. Yeah, yeah. It only not, makes sense, right? Not just lying. Like if something is wrong, like I find that of with course. My, friend, my, my best friend or with my mom, but I feel like something is wrong. Like I can sense it in the way that their voice and their body, like I can just sense it, you know? You know? Absolutely. And I, I encourage you to keep going with that, that um, sense that you have that intuition or that empathy for them. And it is based on, you know, them and you know, their history. So if you have a really great sense of what they're like, ordinarily, a change in that is going to stand out to you. And I think someday we're going to confirm it in the laboratory, even <laughs> if we don't have that yet. <laughs> right, right. Okay, Jillian, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you today. Um, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. And I'm sure that our my listeners found it very helpful. Well, thank you, Selena. It was fun talking with you. All right. Thank you so much. And uh, you take care and have a great day. You too, Selene. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed what you just heard, please subscribe to my podcast and feel free to share it with your friends and family. Take care and speak soon.